Welcome, everyone, to the AI in Business podcast. I'm Matthew DeMello, senior editor here at Emerge. Daniel Fagella, Emerge CEO and head of research, returns to the show today to host our conversation. On that note, today's guest is Piotr Neidswise, founder and CEO of Neptune Labs Incorporated. He and Daniel discuss how business leaders can best help their organizations navigate the transition from an AI services model to an AI product model. From challenges in venture capital to judging whether or not your AI service can be a viable product to begin with, Peter pulls directly from his experience at Neptune and beyond to offer the audience direct insight. Without further ado, here's their conversation. So, Piotr, welcome to the program. Hi, guys. Happy to be here. Yeah, good to have you with us. We're touching on a topic that we haven't delved into in depth in quite some time, which is sort of making the transition from an AI services business into an AI product business, a, a journey that we've seen is very fraught with dangers, and many people don't even make the first step, never mind make it all the way there. You've had a, a foot in both worlds, and you've seen both. I wanted to start off with just some background on your AI services company, how that started, and, and then we can kind of move our way into when the product idea dropped into your mind when you had your experience there. Sure, sure. So we are talking about DeepSense AI. It's the AI consulting firm I founded. It was maybe eight, nine years ago. At that time, I had already another networking consulting software company, Codyline. And when it comes to DeepSense, it started from okay. I have I have background in programming and math. I have a double degree in math and computer science. So data science is a kind of natural natural thing for me yep but i i met with my friends from from college Wojtek zaremba who is one of the co-founders of OpenAI, maybe eight years ago in san francisco he was he was researcher at the time like he's still researcher but there was no open ai yet and he shared with me what he's working on and it was time when i realized like understood how big AI can be. So because I have pretty strong network of, of people with math, computer science background, and believe that it is something, something ne- next big thing in, in technology. I, I, I don't like to say whether it's you know for goods or for bad, yeah, but it's yeah, definitely yeah. for change. Okay. And for sure. And and for me, curiosity is one of the main drivers. So I started to getting, you know closer to it and and this is how DeepSense AI was established. Initially we were providing kind of consulting, building proof of concepts for, for companies of, of machine learning models for different problems. And and it started growing. And something like maybe six years ago, one of the data scientists at DeepSense created internal tool Today, it's easy to, to explain, I would say, experiment tracker. But at the time, you know, this term didn't exist. So this tool was helping us to track process of training machine learning models, compare different models, track them, being able to reproduce, share them. So it very quickly became a tool for the whole company. And it is, it is at least, idea for experiment tracker was born. Yeah. 
So you were building it to use it within your own organization because yeah. you guys needed to do this. And when this idea for the service business came around, was this at the same time? I know you had internships at Facebook and at Google. Yes. Was it was it during that time when when you met your open AI comrade and got to see all these uh, things? It was actually, and so I did those internships when I was when I was studying. It was something like thirteen years ago. After Facebook internship, I decided to to establish my first company. It was servicing company because in Poland at that time, I would say even in Europe, but. But definitely in Poland, VC ecosystem didn't exist. Yeah. So yeah. to establish product company, you could do that if you either was rich or you would build a product company that can be profitable from the day zero. Yeah. And in tech, it is not so easy. There That's are guys right. who managed to do that, but but in tech, it's not easy. So servicing company was a kind of more realistic move. Yes, I would say. Yeah, and I think a lot of people don't realize that. They don't realize that the undercurrents of venture capital are really a big reason product companies can be born, right? Because in America, we have a lot of that. Yeah. So, and talk maybe a little bit about the, when you realize that maybe this project tracker or this this kind of progress tracker could turn into a product unto itself. I mean, you you build something in-house. The famous example here, by the way, from what I understand is Slack where Slack was used as an in-house communication tool at a mm. gaming company. And then they were just using it to talk about their game, but then their gaming company wasn't going so well. And they were like, what if this was a product? And they span it into a product and, you know, they famously sold for a lot of money. Sounds like, you know, in a somewhat similar way, you developed a tool for your own use. When did it click for you that this could be something more than this? You know, it started from pain. <laughs> so I remember we won, okay, to promote ourselves, a deep sense. We didn't spend money on you know Google Ads, etc. But we wanted to because we are we are targeting CTOs, lead data scientists, so people who are kind of they don't like bullshit. Okay, they they need to prove of yes. the quality. Yes. So we said, okay, let's try to win some Kaggle competitions, and we managed to win one. It was about whale recognition. Anyway, <laughs> we won the, we won the, uh, it, it was a, it was a fun one, but we managed to win. And in order to be titled as winner, you need to show how you did it. You need to kind of open source your solution. Yes, yes, yes. But it took us almost like, okay, I, I would be a little bit exaggerating, but just a little bit around a month where the whole, like where the whole context contest was around two months. We, we spent around a month after it to recreate the solution because the final solution was a sample of a couple of models we built during the competitions. Of We didn't have, at that time, we did, like only part of the team was using this internal tool that was tracking hyperparameter, source code, the training processes. So we, we didn't manage to reproduce exactly the same model, but close enough so... So I thought that it was such a waste of time. Like, <laughs> and me have, having, you know, I started programming when I was seven. So I've been coding from the time I remember. And for me, it was something very natural. I kind of, it smelled wrong that it is so chaotic and, and, and it's not kind of versioned 
the process of training models. So I felt the pain, the team felt the pain, and, and I talked with, as I said, I have a pretty good network from competitive programming times of people who today are data scientists, researchers. So I talked with my friends, asked them, okay, guys, how do you do okay, what is today called experiment tracking? But I explained. And I realized that there are, that once you have a team like plus eight data scientists, you have some homemade experiment tracker. Sometimes it was just a you know Google spreadsheet with with batch of scripts connected to it, but it was experiment tracker. So it was a it was a good validation validation that at least problem exists. So it was the time. It was something like four maybe four and a half year ago when I felt that okay the problem exists maybe we can build a business around it yeah and well it's it's funny because actually we talked to the the head of CEO of Domino Data Lab who I met before they raised any money at all out in San Francisco mm. and then we interviewed him about a year ago and he I I I think you guys are in a slightly different ballpark in terms of the kinds of things that you do product-wise. I haven't done a side-by-side comparison with Neptune or yeah. anything, but he had mentioned that there's a whole new interesting suite of problems that happen when you reach you know, eight or 10 data scientists where everybody's redoing the same work of everybody else. So you basically found a pocket of that very early on and said, okay, this is something people could pay for. Of course, the idea, and you and I both know this, very, very different than the company. So you talk to smart people, you got some very good feedback, which is a, yeah. a great way to validate at least the early stages of what could be a product. When did you really decide, okay, this just should be its own legal entity, this this should be its own project at a higher level? It was not way long, you know, I didn't wait. But what was hell, okay, I, I need to give you more context about service and business. So yes. In a software servicing business plus consulting, what you would realize and once you once your company start grow, start growing is that you need kind of a bench of people of engineers of data scientists who who can be ready once you acquire new products new customer because they don't want to wait, let's say, yeah. next half a year once you, once you build a team for them. So it is one thing. You need a bench. You need people who are kind of, who have free resources, like free time. On the other hand, you, there are highly skilled people, very well paid, and can work in most of the companies in the world, especially today. Yeah. So they cannot, they wouldn't be, even you pay them well, they wouldn't be happy doing nothing. So once a yeah, once a servicing company, software services company is getting bigger, you usually have this need, and you need to have an idea what what those folks can do in in the meantime between projects. So we were so there was a team of people who were building like who who were asked to start building Neptune. At the time, it was at DeepSense, so this was easier than. What I did, maybe this, maybe this quite some quite unique, so I will share it. So I wanted to. I kind of felt that the product company quite likely will need to have a little bit different culture from servicing company. In particular, I think that in a services company, you don't necessarily need so many 
people with, I would call it rebel personality. Because it doesn't work usually well with customers, or at least not with every customer. Other, but in contrary, like in a, in a you know, product company, you want, you don't need to be, I don't need a polite feedback. I want to get as harsh as possible feedback as soon mm. as possible. That's mm. why this rebel mentality of your team is helpful. So what I did, I, I talked with seven, I would call them key people in, in, in this, in this team that were developing Neptune as an internal tool at that time and ask them who wants to invest with me, reduce their salary and we will create, you know, we, you would be co-founder. We will create a new entity. I would put money because I had money at the time. I, yeah. I initially put $2 million to Neptune to buy the IP, buy out the, uh, the team and IP from DeepSense. Because what's another thing that I kind of expected is that this type of business would require capital, quite like in eventually more deep central holder would be willing to put because it's high risk type of business. Yeah. So I will need to get this capital from investors. And I quickly, yeah, it was just a few calls. I realized that doing the fundraising in a cap table setup where you have servicing company being 100% or like 90% owner of the company would be very challenging and not natural. So they want to have people who are directly working on the on the product being the shareholders yeah so okay i think it, okay six out of seven decided to reduce the salary so they became co-founder with me they're the one guy who didn't understand why I, he he stayed at, at deep sense yeah got it, it, got so it. it's how, how it's how it was established yeah so clearly formed a separate legal entity. And there's a couple yeah. things you've, you've brought up here that I think are really interesting for our audience. One, yes, in a services firm, if we're talking to a lot of clients and we're doing relatively uh, you know, unique work for individual clients, maybe we need a kind of regularity for how we talk to them and how we engage with them and what it looks like when we interface with them, et cetera. While with a product company, maybe we just need more bright minds that are able to give us the harshest possible feedback. And we don't really care because it's all internal. It's whatever we can learn from and grow. Yes. So there's a different culture. That's one. Number two, you brought up, and of course, we have the separate legal entity. You also brought up this idea of the cap table and what looks natural. So from what you're saying, and I'm going to put this in a nutshell, when venture capital eventually invests they're going to want to look at a cap table that looks like a startup where you have a bunch of founders. And if the cap table looks like, well, there's a service company that spun this thing out, they would see it as unnatural, you said. I would presume yeah. what you mean by unnatural is that maybe the incentives aren't in line. In other words, like, well, if the services company, quote unquote, is the investor, is that as good as having five or six or seven really strong individual people where the incentives are aligned. Why is it unnatural? Why did you think that that would be a turnoff for them? I can totally understand it, but I'd like your words. Sure. So we are talking about early stage, really seed stage of a company, right? So at the seed stage, you have a seed stage, you have idea, you have team, maybe you have some POC, 
but you do not have business. Yeah. And definitely, definitely you don't have a business that can be run by a different management team. So the whole value of the company is the team. So you want to be sure that you want to understand the comp. Okay, compensation schema is one thing, but but compensation consists of of salary, right? It is easy, but also ESOP employer stock options or or stock options in with reverse vesting. So investors in the first let's like I would say I don't know when, but I think maybe stage B. Round B is the time when you quite like you have already a business model. So, so a business that you know can be run with a, another management team. But before that, the biggest asset is the team. So that's why you want to have control over the biggest assets as an investor. I understand it. Makes sense. So I guess in terms of the core differences between, I think again, there's a lot of folks who have worked with services businesses on the AI side and product businesses, they probably don't know really what makes them different on the inside. There's also a lot of founders of services companies, and Piotr, you would know this, who dream that one day they would be a product business, right? Oh, do we, we want to keep winning all these projects. We have to hire all these salespeople. You know, we want to have a product business where we, we have recurring revenue, yada, yada. Every service person, every service business over 12 people says the same thing. But it's easier said than done. You've brought up the difference of culture and people. You've brought up this kind of cap table consideration, which is very different for a product company. And we obviously have, you know, you've, you've drawn the firm line that this is going to be a separate legal entity. What else for you are really the key differences from somebody who's the CEO, you founded many companies now, the CEO of a product company. What else are those core differences that make leading a team and a company very different on the product side as opposed to the services side? It is, of course, very much correlated with the per with the personality of, of people, like type of people you, you need to have on, on board. But okay, in a services company, you are looking from the day zero, like you want to get to the point where you are well diversified customer-wise, otherwise you're dependent on one big customer and, it's, and as a business, it is tough position. We used to be like, like my companies used to be at the beginning like that and, and I know it's hard. So. So you are looking for secure, a kind of security balance. You you don't necessarily you have time. Like if you if you run it from kind of down to earth perspective, you have time. Services, software services were with us ten years ago, and I I I believe they will be with us in terms of ten years from oh, now. Sure, so the course. time pressure time pressure is like there are different pressures, but. Time-wise, it's not so time-sensitive. It's better to grow two times in the next three years, but in a kind of diversified, secure way. But in the in the product company, you're burning money. There is like there are a lot of stories of product companies with great idea that started too early or too late. Rather, like there, I heard more about too early, and the timing is is very so you also need to run business differently you would be doing like before you get to the point where you're profitable you would be raising capital so you you don't want to raise capital you know too often because it's very distracting 
On the other hand, it is not feasible like to raise capital every five years. So, so usually it's around every two years. And you need to, what we are doing, for instance, we are making all the biggest moves, decisions, try to do them just after last round, because bigger moves brings, okay, you can win a lot, but you can lose a lot. That's why I want to have more time to calibrate later, right? So this timing makes, makes more pressure, I would say. So people in, in the, you need to have people who are more comfortable in r- running kind of in more chaotic way, in more ad hoc way. In a, in, a, in a services business, it is not necessarily how you should do that. Also, people like people prefer more predictiveness, kind of security. Yeah. So those things are definitely different. Another thing for CEO that is different is your partner. So yeah. in my first company, it was just my friends, right? We didn't take any, like there are over 500 people working in my services companies today, but there was no external investment at all. It was, everything was built, you know, from zero. It was easy to be profitable at the beginning and we were growing it step by step. Here we have board members, we have investors. So, so it is, this relation is more professional. I'm not saying that it is, not natural like i have i think i think they're yeah that i'm lucky that's have a healthy kind of friendly relation with my investors yeah because i'm also investing i I, i've been investor at neptune and last round i also invested so i i have two hats i am on one hand okay vc investor investing only on neptune yes but also ceo who runs company but it changed that you cannot be you cannot be so inventive, I, I would say. <laughs> what <laughs> is it? To, what is it? This is really, really interesting. What does inventive mean? <laughs> uh, like I, I was, I remember <laughs> it was it's a shameful story, but when we start, like when we started our first company, Codyline, the very first customers were coming from the Bali. And so even though we were based in Poland, we were visiting Bali a lot. And we bought a, like we had, <laughs> we thought that we can do almost everything. So we started doing marketing and we had an, a great idea of buying a car in the Bali. We printed, like we came, we bring them from Poland kind of stickers with like with our faces and we put those stickers on this car. Like we put some top Polish quality. It was not sticked properly. So it's. It was a little bit contradictory. Software services, and we're running like in the weekends. We're running around the valley with this car. I remember, uh, I remember one of the like serious enterprise customers. We parked this car in this car at their parking. They they also had their own customers. Asked me kind of this, the the CTO asked me kind of privately, just like you know, it is not a. Eastern Europe, it's, you know, it's smells bad, right? Like, huh. can you put this car next to Walmart or so? <laughs> yeah, so, so it's just an example. Like another example, yeah, we, we, we decided to go to some, uh, it was San Jose, it was maybe Habib Summit or so. And yeah, we, we bought the cheapest 
that you have sponsored package, we had a small table, but we wanted to be, you know, we wanted to use the opportunity. It was a big investment for us at, at the time. So we, again, stickers. We produced a lot of stickers uh, with company logo and decided to place them in every toilet, like no matter gender-wise, no matter, everywhere, right? Well, All for, the venue was with for, our stickers. Wow, that for Neptune. No, no, no. It was no at Neptune. It would be it would be too far. Right? <laughs> I think that our, our investors, who are also connected with with brands, would feel like would. Yeah, I think it would be too oh, far. Oh, because you're saying that this kind of inventiveness is okay when there's nobody to. You know, I'm not saying did. that it is okay and effective. I think it was effective to some extent because yeah. we were well recognized, but rather as a toilet company. <laughs> and, and we had to pay, I, I don't know, 2K dollars for damage for the venue. So it was, the cheap, it was, I think, the cheapest and at the same time, the most <laughs> recognizable sponsorship package by the end of the day. But it is what I call, you know, going wild or being creative. Yes. Okay. Okay. So, so what you're getting at is that when you, your cap table is more full with other folks as investors... Yeah. You have to be more mindful now of what are our marketing tactics? What are the ways we're going to get things exactly. done? And exactly. would, would, this, plus, would this pass? Yeah. Plus, you have people who would tell you, Piotr, like, come on. <laughs> it is not how, how it's done, right? So, like, people who have, who have been exposed to many businesses have seen way more because I would say that, that I've always, like, at the beginning when we started my first company, I was doing it with really smart guys, like intelligent-wise, great, top guys in the world when it comes to math and algorithm competitions. But we didn't have experience. We didn't have any business experience. Yeah. So you can be very smart, but if you don't have knowledge, you will get it. You get it the hard way. And you do a lot of mistakes on the road. Okay, got it. So, well, it's important that we kind of draw the line between the difference of those two companies. Again, I think whether our listeners are working with service or product companies, or whether they're thinking of starting one, or in your case, going from services to product, which I know many founders, you know, have as their dream, it's really important, I think, for them to tune in here to the differences, Piotr. You've mentioned culture, which I, I don't think we've ever heard here on the show as a key difference in terms of who you're hiring. Obviously, the cap table considerations, the legal entity side of things, and kind of the level of inventiveness, so to speak, when you are when you have other people bought in. Yeah, I but, think but so. also marketing. Marketing yeah. at Neptune, we are going bottom up. It is community driven. It's huh. highly on SEO. Like We have over 2 million unique visitors on our website on an annual basis. So it is it is bottom up. The services business is top down. It is way different. So completely different. Second thing, sales, self serve mostly product led here mm. enterprise space. Again, completely different. When it comes to approach to customers in the services business, you by the end of the day, customer has the final say period. Yeah. In a product company, it can be deadly. I remember it was around one year after we established Neptune as a you know separate entity. There was a big opportunity, like big gaming company from Israel, was interested in you know buying or using Neptune, but they had 
like and and if we decided to go with them we would tenfold our revenue so you know very tempting right very like, tempting. okay very tenfold tempting. from almost zero is still yeah. close to zero but <laughs> yeah but i'm just saying that when it comes to percentage perspective of the growth it, it was a big and tempting thing yep but but what they wanted they wanted us to deal with like manage the apache spark infrastructure and and provide a way to schedule model training on this infrastructure so something that we didn't we could edit but it was against our long-term vision for the product i just didn't believe that infrastructure management wouldn't be solved by cloud providers or databricks today it is obvious but at the time it was not so obvious and we declined but yeah it was tough decision but you know for services business it is perfect right it is a big project you can of course you should because if your if your customers in service business wouldn't be successful eventually they they will realize that you are not guiding them properly but yeah but still i was sharing it with this lead it didn't i i didn't manage to convince them one of the competitors today okay used to be competitor so today this company this doesn't exist but decided to go do that they did it but around one half year later i talked with the with the lead data scientists from from this company and they said that they switched to aws when it comes to this component it is approach to customers yeah. You need to. You, in, it is very important to to you know to do the right job to the customers, but you need to be way more assertive when you're running for a company because you can do some customization, but will you be able to keep this quality in a half year, maybe in a year, if it's not in line with the vision? Yeah. And how many of them you can you can really handle? It's a different level of responsibility for the vision, right? With the with the customer, with the service business, you say yes, you collect a little bit more bank, hopefully you keep them around. You know, you're getting paid to do something custom, that's perfectly fine. To know when to hold the line, to say no to more revenue in order to have the possibility of greater upside on the back end, it's a different kind of discipline for how you all teams have to be managed, et cetera. So very, very, very and provides more context for me as to how how few services firms actually do make the leap but Piotr you are one of the strange ones who have done it and are doing some exciting things i hope we get to see more of neptune in the years ahead yeah i was ahead. lucky to have that my friends who started with me services business were here like we're there to run those businesses yeah because not every every founder of services business is lucky enough and it is i at least i was not able to do both at the same time so yeah. i had to decide you had to make the jump well and and again a lesson learned having a foot in both sides is very very challenging for people and i think your experience doing this hands-on is important so hopefully for those of you tuned in whether you're starting companies working with companies this is a nice insight as to how they are fundamentally different in many many ways from sales to culture and beyond Piotr, again i know that's all we had for time but thank you so much for being able to share your personal experience with so much frankness with us today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mathieu. You know, looking back at today's episode, I found myself coming back to 
what Piotr had to say about the porous nature of AI services firms and the complexity of their relationships with their customers, as opposed to AI product organizations, which tend to be more insular. Also, in the pace of raising capital, how you don't want to raise too much funding too quickly, that there's that there's a cadence to that that's actually efficient. Piotr also noted this while contrasting his experience with his first company, where he was able to keep funding insular between himself and his friends, or rather original partners. There's that old saying from The Godfather Part 2, keep your friends close and such, that I've found to be just overrated the older and older I get and learn more about the world. But the emphasis on the insularity of successful AI product models should help many business leaders listening to today's show know if it's truly in the DNA of their business that that's what they should become. While the track from AI services to AI product is a popular and envied one, it's it's not for everyone. And I hope the insight from today's episode gave more perspective on the realities of not only that transition that's necessary, but also what the end game actually looks like from those on the outside of the AI product space. On behalf of Daniel and the entire team here at Emerge, thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll catch you next time on the AI in Business podcast.